Next, this month's special series, Focus on Women's and Men's Health. ReachMD examines new developments in the diagnosis and treatment of gender-specific medical issues. The management of Peyronie's disease presents several challenges to the clinician. Despite progress in the understanding of Peyronie's on several fronts, it remains a physically and psychologically devastating condition for the affected patient and his partner. Welcome to our special segment on men's health. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Anthony Bella. Dr. Bella is an assistant professor of urology at the University of Ottawa in Canada and also is an associate scientist at the Ottawa Health Research Institute and the director of urologic basic science research with a primary focus on the molecular mechanisms of cavernous nerve response to injury and the identification of novel treatments for neurogenic ED. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Bella. Thank you, Leslie, and thanks very much for having me as part of your program. I guess more importantly, though, letting me have the opportunity to talk about a disease that is not uncommon, causes significant morbidity, and is little known to most clinicians. The simple fact is that if in your practice you have more than 20 men between ages 40 to 60, you have patients with Peyronie's. As we were talking earlier, Dr. Bella, you know, I've never heard of Peyronie's before. What is it? Well, let's look at it in two different perspectives, one from the patient side of things and the other for the clinician. For the patient, it's characterized by bends or narrowings in the shaft of the penis. And you're going to hear this next part correctly, so don't slam on your brakes if you're listening on the radio in your car. The erection can be bent up to 180 degrees. Yes, that's right, pointing right back at your belly button. Painful and physically impossible to use for intercourse. 180 degrees? Absolutely. I'm having a hard time even getting a visual on that one. (laughs) Well, it doesn't stop there. You can have corkscrew shapes. You can have hourglass deformities. Basically, what's happening is the scar tissue for the two coverings that cover your erection cylinders ends up being diseased, and who knows what kind of shape that penis is going to take and what kind of morbidity is going to confer. And how common is this? One in 20 men or 5%. 5% of men, but I guess people don't talk about it. No, it's not one of those things like ED is nowadays where it's really part of the cultural lexicon. You know, with Viagra and, and with the exposure on TV, it's a lot easier for men to talk about not being as potent or as rigid as they used to be. But Peronis is definitely not something you bring up at a cocktail party. Yeah, I'd say not. Now, how do these men typically present to their physician? Peronis can present in many different ways, and in fact, it's quite heterogeneous in its presentation. What ends up happening is there's a little bump on the top side of the penis, maybe the size of a small marble. Over time, it gets bigger, but more importantly, the patient starts to see that either their penis is starting to shrink in size, so it's not getting out there as far as it used to, or it's starting to bend in these bizarre configurations, either upwards or sideways, sometimes downwards. Either the patient and the partner notices this getting worse and worse, and it's one of those things where it's very difficult to bring up to the physician, and oftentimes it's six, nine months after the initial time of bend where we see uh, the patient presenting. Does it, uh, so to speak, come on all at once or is this bending gradual? Usually it's gradual and it's accompanied by a penile pain. And in fact, one of the primary symptoms is pain without really any reason for it. We're talking about pain when the penis is erect, not really when it's soft. And what ends up happening is this is part of the early scar tissue process. In time, you start to see the deformity occur, and and then, as we've talked, it can be quite impressive. The pain itself will resolve in time, 
the bottom line there is it, with or without treatment, that'll go away. But unfortunately, with the new data that's come out, spontaneous resolution is the exception and not the norm. Now, is Peyronie's more common as you get older? That's a great question. I think one of the biggest misconceptions has been that Peyronie's is mainly a, a disease of older men. Although two-thirds of Peyronie's patients are between 40 and 60, and the average onset would be 53, disease is known to occur in patients as young as 18 years of age. So it really depends on the patient and the fact that we don't really know in most cases why men are getting Peyronie's disease, whether it's injury-related, which is rare, or whether it's just one of those things that all of a sudden appears. Have we learned anything new about risk factors for Peyronie's disease? One of the most exciting areas which has really only been established within the last year or so is an association between smoking and Peyronie's disease. Looking at a multi-center population-based study of uh, over 1,000 men, analysis showed that the odds ratio for a man developing Peyronie's disease was between 4.6 and 7.2. That's right, 4.6 to 7.2. If further targeted studies confirm that smoking cessation actually reduces the risk of Peyronie's development, we've got a new strategy for primary and secondary prevention, which really doesn't exist at this time. Also, for curbing disease progression, it may be a motivator for some of these men to actually quit smoking and benefit both in general state of health and also for a progression of the Peyronie's. Now, is Peyronie's something that our primary care colleagues should be screening for routinely? Absolutely, yes. And I think the important thing to point out here is it really takes 30 seconds to one minute as part of a health review asking about sexual function. And there's two reasons why this is important. Of course, we're talking about Peyronie's disease today, but secondly, you're going to pick up on erectile dysfunction. Now, both of these are non-life-threatening conditions, but the other important part is we know from Thompson's data that by identifying men with ED, we do have a very strong predictor for subsequent cardiovascular disease. And the fact is that progression is often two years away to a cardiac event. So it gives us a chance to modify cardiovascular risk factors and really affect morbidity and mortality. Now, if we're thinking about doing an evaluation, what needs to be done? So again, uh, history and physical examinations are the key to diagnosis. And I think most of the information, especially in primary care, can be gathered from that. So what are we looking for? We're looking at, you know, was this a sudden onset versus gradual? What's happening with the penis? What are the bend directions? Is there something that's palpably different? You can really look at it at three different things. One is trying to define the nature of the curve or the deformity. The other is to really look at what the current state of erectile function is. And specifically, we're looking at rigidity and the ability to maintain that rigidity when having sex because it ends up really influencing what we can do with regards to treatments. And finally, and this is often overlooked, is trying to determine the effect of peronies on the partner as well. If you're just joining our discussion, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Anthony Bella, the first American Foundation for Urologic Disease, Robert J. Crane Scholar. We are discussing Peyronie's disease. Tony, how important are psychological factors in Peyronie's? Absolutely essential. And I think, especially from a specialist standpoint, we've been woefully inadequate during the last few years in identifying this component and really bringing it up to the forefront. You know, repeatedly what we see in the clinic is men who have been bounced from one position to another who really haven't been told or asked about the psychological component. And the fact is, if you're able to discuss it with the patient and bring it out, you're empowering the patient. And most importantly, as you do discuss Peyronie's disease, 
you are in most cases able to give some hope about getting back to a more normal sex life. And this is absolutely essential in the overall treatment of these patients. Is there an Internet site that patients can go to to find out more information, especially the partners? There are some good Internet sites that are available now. And the Internet also serves as a good resource to really give the opportunity to connect with other men who have Peyronie's disease, but more importantly, other men and their partners. The two websites which would be recommended would be the ones run by the Peyronie Society as well as the Association of Peyronie's Disease Advocates. These websites are well run, and they do tend to try to filter out a lot of the distractors with Peyronie's disease. What you find is you find people able to identify the anger, depression, fear of rejection, diminished self-worth. All of these are part of a pattern of avoidance of intimacy, and this is directly the result of having this bend or deformity in the penis, which is Peyronie's disease in a nutshell. Is there a role for radiographic studies with Peyronie's? By and large, we don't recommend plain film x-rays or CT scans because there really isn't any data to support this. Most centers will use ultrasonography as part of the initial assessment. And what you're able to do there is identify both calcifications and soft tissue elements of the scar tissue. It's a good investigation because of its availability and low patient risk. It also gives you an opportunity to identify some of the lesions and then follow them as you're treating. And I think this is important for the patient as well to be able to demonstrate, you know, yes, there are changes that are happening or no, there aren't, and we need to do something else. Dr. Bella, for those of us that aren't urologists, if we suspect that one of our male patients has Peyronie's disease, at one point should we refer to you or to a urologist? The key part to this answer is the earlier the better. And the second key is to try to find a urologist that's really up-to-date with contemporary Peyronie's management. The reasoning for this is that medical management, if it's to be used, and the data is quite limited, it does suggest that if treatment is initiated earlier in the disease process, we tend to have better outcomes. I think the other key thing to remember is the majority of men won't require surgical intervention And getting the patient to somebody who has good information, is able to provide the patient their partner with reassurance, uh, is key to Peyronie's management overall. Even though this is such a common condition, a urologist may not necessarily be an expert in this, huh? That's true. And the other thing to keep in mind is the fact that there has been some great progress made over the last three to five years with really gaining an understanding of what happens out there clinically. And we're talking about natural history, what resolves, what doesn't which things work. There have been some good meta-analysis of some of the medical treatments that have been utilized historically, which have shown them to be no better than placebo. So again, one of the important aspects is to have somebody available who is up to date with regards to where modern 2008 Peyronie's management is. Is there ever a chance of spontaneous resolution? John Moho uh, in New York put together a nice study where they did look at men presenting with Peyronie's disease within six months of onset. So again, the right guys where you're getting them nice and early, they were followed for one year, and what was shown that only 12%, so 1-2% of men had spontaneous resolution. 50% of men demonstrated worsening of the curvature at 12 months, and the rest were basically the same as when they started. The other thing to really remember here is the fact that those changes in curvature for the better were only about 15 to 20 degrees. So if somebody's coming in with a 70 or 90 degree change in curvature, 
when you are counseling them about the different potential options, you have to keep in mind that there may not be uh, that significant of an improvement outside of uh, more invasive approaches such as surgery. So the key points are do a quick screening on your male patients and get them to a urologist who knows about Peyronie's as soon as possible. I would agree. I think if you have early identification and then you have somebody who's able to assess and educate identify patient goals for therapy, you're going to have better results, and I think you're going to have both patient and partner satisfaction. The diagnosis of Peyronie's is not the end of a satisfactory sex life, and in fact, the opposite is really true, because using one or more of the treatment approaches available can, in most cases, result in adequate restoration of sexual function. Well, thank you so much for educating us on this today, Dr. Bella. You're very welcome. We've been discussing the evaluation of Peyronie's disease with urologist Dr. Anthony Bella. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to a special segment on men's health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Women's and Men's Health. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com for the same live stream of ReachMD medical news and information you get on XM160, plus CME and thousands of podcasts.